0: Support for this podcast comes from the patrons at Patreon.com/surlan. Hello, and welcome to Serlin on Game Design, Episode Four: Tournament Rules. And I'm with Afotix today. Hey, Surlan, how's it going today? Hey, good. So let's talk about how to run a tournament. Sounds good. Yeah, there's people who contact me all the time about this stuff. Whenever there's some kind of tournament fiasco that's gone wrong in either sports or video games, uh, people want to know, what do I think about it? So I think we should explain a whole bunch of things about how tournaments work or or just how not to do them wrong.
1: (laughs) Sure, yeah, there's a lot of pitfalls that you can run into while trying to organize a tournament.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's kind of like multiple layers of pitfalls. So one kind of layer is just bonehead mistakes. And that's the kinds that I see the most in the media in these big news stories where the tournament organizers just should have known about the stuff ahead of time. But then there's a whole other layer. Even if you avoid all those mistakes, there's some really tricky judgment calls you have to make and what's fair and what's not. So I thought we should get to that a little later after we've laid some groundwork of the more, straightforward kind of problems. Sure. <laughs> uh, so let me start with a question I'll pose to you. What is the point of a tournament? Like why even have a tournament? What's it for?
1: Well, you are trying to test who's the best at the game, at least on that given day.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good answer. So I will give you my answer, which is really similar. Uh, I think there's three things that are the point. And the first one is exactly what you said. It's, who's the best player or players on that specific day. Also, there's the concept of entertaining the players, of it being an enjoyable experience for the players. And then third, it being an enjoyable experience for spectators. And of those three things, you can really set the percentage weights however you want. Like if you were to hold your own little eight-person tournament of some game just at your local game store or whatever, then maybe you set the spectator thing to 0% importance because there aren't any. Sure. And if it was a huge televised tournament, you might set that higher. And that's something that you and I have actually disagreed on before is like, let's say that you were setting the spectator importance to non-zero, that it mattered. Then like, how far can you really turn that? How much can you encroach on the 0.1, like the legitimacy of the tournament before it starts to be like a a sham? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I
1: definitely uh, tend to set that percentage for spectators higher than you would uh, decide to.
0: Yeah, so that's something we can uh, get into a little bit later. But there, I mean, we can just acknowledge now that we could disagree on exactly, you know, those percentages or something. But at least we know that these are the factors in play, these, these three things. So let's think about some different types of tournaments that are common. Uh, So single elimination is a very common type of tournament. Uh, Should we explain what each of these are or does everyone already know? Oh, I think we should explain them. Okay, go ahead and explain single elimination.
1: Okay, so single elimination, you have a bracket, um, you know, two players or two teams uh, will be paired off each round. And basically winner advances to the next round, which will have half the amount of players and the loser is eliminated. And you just keep narrowing the field down by half every round until someone's the winner.
0: Yeah, so it's very simple, like the simplest form of tournament. If you lose, you're out. If you win, you advance, and that's it. And at the end of the day, there will be one player or one team or whatever who has not lost at all, and they win the tournament. So what do you think about that as a form of tournament?
1: Well, I mean, it's certainly a nice format to use if the tournament either is for a game that requires a lot of time to play. For example, if the game you were playing took three hours to play a single game, it would probably, uh, it would probably be impractical to run anything but similar, uh, single elimination just due to the time factor. So it's helpful for, uh, keeping the time down. Also, um, on the flip end of that, it can be too short in a game, but like say, uh, say street fighter two, one single round or, you know, one single game might be too little gameplay to decide who should advance and who shouldn't so. It it definitely has its merits for longer games, but usually not ideal for shorter games.
0: Okay. So I agree with the part about if we had a long game that took three hours to play or something, that this might be a good format. Because the other formats that we're going to cover in just a minute would take so long, it would just be crazy. And that kind of goes back to the the first point I was making about who who is this tournament for? And we had these three factors. So one of the factors, uh, I think the second one I said was it's for the enjoyment of the participants. And if you had a three hour game and you used a different format that took basically weeks to play the tournament, it could be so miserable <laughs> that it's just right. not enjoyable to take part in it. So, so yeah, that's one reason you want single elimination. Uh, another thing is that Maybe this was a bad one to do first. I don't know, because we're having to refer to the other ones we haven't got to yet. But uh, there's a lot of problems, like things that could go wrong that don't in single elimination because it's just so straightforward.
1: Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Very little confusion or room for things like that to happen.
0: Yeah. Or room for trickery or cheating or whatever. It's just, yeah, it's good and simple. Uh, I will take a little issue with what you were saying though about if it's a short game. So let's take a short game like street fighter. We didn't specify how many rounds per match. And we say single elimination. So if I'm facing you in the tournament in the first round, uh, only one of us will advance, but we could play one game of street fighter or we could play 27 games of street fighter to determine who will advance. That's up to the tournament organizer. So, So even for a short game, it's actually fine. You just choose the number of, games per match you want. Okay, well, let's move on to double elimination. So double elimination is kind of similar, but if you lose, instead of being eliminated from the tournament, you're put into a loser's bracket, and you can think of the loser's bracket kind of like a second single elimination tournament. So you lose, and then you get put in this loser's bracket where you fight the other losers, and if you get to the end of the loser's bracket without losing again, then you will face the winner of the winner's bracket. And then if you beat them twice, then you can win the whole tournament. So it's good because you have more chances. Like let's say you traveled really far to get to a tournament and then right away you lose. You're actually not out of the tournament. You've got another chance. So that's that's good. And people like that. But it takes incredibly long. <laughs> have you dealt with double elimination tournaments before? Oh,
1: sure. I'd say the... One of the first tournaments I ever casted for Yomi was a double elimination tournament that lasted probably five hours for only, I think, 20 players or something.
0: Yeah, I probably should have had the stats uh, ready for this. I didn't really think ahead, but the number of rounds... For a double elimination tournament is just a lot of rounds. So in single elimination, let's say you had 32 people, that's going to be five rounds because two to the fifth power is 32. So if it took an hour per round, it would take five hours to complete that tournament. But double elimination, uh, it's a lot longer. And part of it is to do with waiting to have your opponents ready for the next match, like winners waiting around for the losers to finish or something. So it's, it's way more hours than you might think at first glance. Uh, and it's been a real big problem in running fighting game tournaments to do double elimination because they just notoriously take all day. <laughs> uh, one th- Another good thing about them, though, a single elimination tournament can only reliably determine the top player, the number one player. So think about that for a minute. Imagine that you were the number two player and you happened to face the number one player in the very first round or something. So then you'd lose, but you didn't really deserve to. Like you should have got second because you were second best. Right, But then the double elimination tournament can reliably determine the top two at least. Um, So that's another plus, but it does take a long time. Okay, let's move on to round robin. (laughs) I bet you're already cringing at just the thought of running a round robin tournament. Yeah, my, my eyebrows raised and my eyes were emboldened when you said that. So round robin is where everybody plays everybody, literally, literally everybody in the tournament. We'll play everybody else. And then you add up all those results to see who wins. So what do you think about that format?
1: Uh, That's a great format if you have a very small amount of players. And, you know, it just allows you to get uh, a lot of games in with every other player. So that's cool. But once you get past maybe a handful of players, it's just completely unreasonable on the uh, time front.
0: Yeah. It definitely is. There's a lot more problems, too. Oh, sure.
1: Uh, a lot of these other problems are shared with Swiss. So maybe we can kind of cover both things at once.
0: Um, are they? Let me uh, before I forget what I was even thinking. Let me just go sure. into it, though. So in round robin. OK, actually, let's go back to the the three points of running a tournament. You know, the first one was to determine the best player that day. And I think that some people are so into that one, which is very important. That's the most important but if you rate the second one zero, you know, enjoyability for the players, then you start doing these things where you want best of 27 matches, <laughs> right? Right. Because if we played best of three to see who advances, then maybe the wrong person would win, right? There's too much sure. variation. So let's play best of 27. And also, I just explained how double elimination could fail the to the third best player. The third best player could get a bad uh, draw of who they play. And so we could address that with round robin because everybody will play everybody. And it it's just, it makes it miserable because there's so many matches that take so long. And now we're, we've actually opened up a huge can of worms now besides it taking long, even if it was fast. And that is collusion. So the things that go wrong in tournaments that we hear on the news that have some fiasco, they often have to do with this lame duck kingmaker situation. So what lame duck means is in, it, within a game, like a board game that was four players or something, could have a lame duck situation if one of the players had no chance of winning, but they're still in the game for some reason. And that gives rise to kingmaker, where someone who cannot win, with the lame duck we just talked about, there's some move they can make that would make somebody else win, That would so they get to choose who wins. That's a really bad property that we try to take out of games. But then if you go up a level and apply it to a whole tournament, it becomes even worse. Like imagine if you're in a tournament and you can't actually win anymore, <laughs> but you can determine who does win the whole tournament. That would be a total disaster. Uh, I think you were going to say that, that Swiss has that too, right?
1: Right. And all yeah, the lame duck and the kingmaker. I well, guess we, yeah.
0: Let me go ahead and explain Swiss and then we could do, both at once, kind of. So what's Swiss about?
1: Okay, so Swiss, it takes sort of the idea of round robin where you're playing a lot of games. You don't uh, get eliminated based on a certain amount of losses per se. Basically, it, every round, you're going to get paired with another person who has the same record of when losses you, if possible. Otherwise, it might have to give you uh, an opponent with a slightly different record. And it will continue pairing uh, pairing off with um, someone of the same record until the desired number of rounds so you can find a winner but you could set Mm -hmm. that to any number really
0: yeah so round one uh everybody's paired up and we all play and then after that half the people are one and oh because they won and so those people with a one and oh record in round two will fight other people with a one and oh record right and the people with the zero and one record are the losers they'll play other losers and that just kind of keeps going on right the people who have like a Two and zero at the end of that, we'll play other people's two and zero. Yeah, so you, if you run enough rounds, then you can rank the players. Uh, you know, the, the player who won, the player who got second, the player got third. Often you're going to have ties, and so you you use tiebreakers. Okay, let's go back to round robin though and talk about that kingmaker lame duck stuff. So, in round robin, it's entirely possible that you have lost enough times that you can't actually win the tournament but you're playing against someone who still could win and whether you beat them or not is going to determine their placing. And so that's just really corrupt. Like it's opening the door to corruption. And if that's your friend or something, then like they should just lose to you because there's no drawback to them for losing.
1: Yeah. And it also feels bad to be, let's say you are in contention for winning the tournament and you're not involved in that match that could be corrupt, it feels really bad that your fate in this tournament relies on some game with a guy who has nothing to lose or nothing to gain. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah,
0: that's another, that's exactly right, is that he, there's often situations where the the person who might win is waiting around for some other match to, to see if they win, <laughs> right? It's really like anti-hype and unintuitive. Uh, it's. I just can't even emphasize how ripe for collusion that is. You can't even help but, but cheat it when you're in that situation. Right. Because you just lose. I mean, why not lose? You have no skin in the game anymore. Right. And maybe someone you like more stands to win because of it.
1: Also, you can have lame duck in the other direction where one player is not out, but everyone, like the tournament has already we already know who's going to win with multiple rounds to go. And then it's kind of not exciting anymore for anybody because we already know who won.
0: Yes. That's also unhype. And then on top of all that, there's a level of unfairness to it because let's say you are in this round Robin tournament and you happen to play all of your matches really early, like right at the beginning and now you're done. And now somebody else happens to play their matches towards the end, but the person who's playing it towards the end they see all these results already, and so they're able to potentially make these collusion moves that you didn't even have access to. So how much you can like screw the tournament depends on the luck of the draw of the scheduling, and that's really bad, too.
1: Right, and also the fact that the guy who's going to get to play everyone last is going to be playing against more fatigued opponents than the first guy.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's more minor, but that is true. At evolution one year we did round, not round robin of the whole tournament. Cause that would be crazy, but this thing with pools. So imagine that there's a well single or double elimination tournament it could go either way. It was actually chose double elimination, but in order to get into that tournament, you had to advance past your pool, which is your group of eight people or something that you're with. So you play a little mini tournament with eight people and, the mini tournament had been double elimination at one point, and then it was tried as round robin. And it was a real bad situation because all these collusion things that you'd imagine might happen, they, they did happen.
2: <laughs>
0: sure. And it was difficult to run because it was confusing. It's just a strange format to keep track of. So what were we seeing about Swiss Do you have some criticism of?
1: Oh, well, Swiss, I think the main criticism of Swiss is ties uh, and tiebreakers. And people, for one reason or another, just can't stand the fact that they got a worse ranking because the opponents they played against were overall worse than the opponents that someone else played against. Uh, Maybe we should explain exactly how tiebreakers work because that might not make sense.
0: Okay, yeah. So how do tiebreakers work in most Swiss tournaments?
1: Okay, so there's different layers of tiebreakers, uh, because sometimes one layer will not be enough to break the tie. So yeah. if we're both if we're both, let's say five and two, and that's the best record out of any one of the tournaments, so me and you are five and two, the first layer of tiebreakers will be direct competition, which means if at any point in the tournament we played, whoever won that game is uh, who, they win the tie.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. so well, you and I already played earlier and you beat me, so you just win this tie. That makes sense to me. I think that's the most legit of all these tiebreakers. Okay, so what besides direct competition is a tiebreaker?
1: Okay, so assuming that direct competition can't solve it, next you have to go to opponent match win percentage. What that means is that we take a look at every person I played in the tournament and every person you played in the tournament and see... Which set of opponents did better basically it's trying to figure out who played the stronger people and therefore deserves to break the tie
0: Yeah, I played a bunch of weak losers and like a kangaroo that wandered in the tournament or something And then you're playing like Daigo and the best players in the world and you beat them all or whatever So you get to win the tiebreaker in that case. It's a little sketchy, but like what else are you gonna do?
1: Right. Well, actually there is a third thing you can do just in case those both fail which is theoretically possible and that is game win percentage. For example, let's say we were playing Street Fighter and we were playing best of three games in each round. If I win all my matches two to zero and you win all of your matches two to one, I will have a better game win percentage than you do and that will break the tie.
0: Yeah, I really don't like that one because I feel like if I win a match two to one, that that should just count as a win. Like it's sad that there's any kind of penalty at all. Sure, uh, I, I, I totally agree. But it's the same as the opponent match win percentage in that even though I don't like it, I I think you should use it because you have no other choice.
1: Yeah, you just have to break the tie somehow. So.
0: Yeah, and if if those are still tied, you're really in trouble. Like uh, I think the official Magic the Gathering thing is when all the tiebreakers are tied, the first person on the sign-up list wins the tiebreaker. That's a and real it, rule. Uh,
1: As absurd as that sounds, I can actually understand why that is, because at some point you just have to almost flip a coin.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's get into another type that combines these previous types. I kind of alluded to it a little bit with the pools thing, but let's say we wanted to start out with Swiss. Actually, maybe we should say a little bit more about Swiss, like what's good about it. So what's good is that everybody gets to play a lot. So, if you especially imagine yourself traveling to some tournament, it took you a long time to get there. And now you can play every single round. It's not like single elimination, where if you lose once, you're out, or double, where you lose twice and you're out. You can play as much as you want. Now, you may lose a lot to the point where there's no real way you can win, but at least you get to participate. So, that's why people like it. Now, something that's a negative there well, one thing is these lame duck situations that we discovered but also it's really unhype like imagine the final round and is everybody watching the finals I mean, no nobody's watching it because everybody's playing <laughs> right? right so it's so unhype that it's really rare as a to do pure swiss as a tournament format i guess chess does it or maybe even chess doesn't anymore i cuz don't they have real finals But like competitive video games just do not do that. And Magic doesn't do it either. What they do is you can do Swiss for a certain number of rounds, and then you cut to single elimination. Because single elimination has drama. It has few enough matches ending up in just one grand finals that it's good for the spectators. Uh, And it's also good for the players who are out of contention, and they want to become spectators, if that makes sense.
1: Right. For what it's worth, I think that Swiss with a cut to the top eight or top whatever is the best format, at least for a tournament that's going to be spectated.
0: Yeah, I've thought about this a whole lot. And my opinion is that that format has a lot of problems and we're about to talk about them. And after we factor those in, it's still the best.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. That's that's my position
0: as well. It, it, so the problems it has are really unfortunate, but the reason that it comes out as the best in my opinion is that it's balancing these different factors we were trying to achieve. It wasn't it's not entirely about how do we determine the most fair thing because we're trying to entertain the the players and they're getting a lot of games in the swiss portion and they like that. Uh, and it's also to entertain spectators and they definitely like having a real grand finals. So it's kind of like a combination of of hitting all those factors. But the thing that goes wrong with it is that when you're cutting from one format to another format, that cut just creates all these opportunities for screw-ups. So the first one is this concept of intentional draw that you see in Magic the Gathering tournaments. So can you explain that, or do you want me to try?
1: Okay, sure. Uh, I guess in order to understand why that would be something you want to do, we have to explain how the structure of Swiss is usually done. Yeah, so well, first just what it
0: is. I mean, what it is is that instead of playing a match, both players agree to draw and they don't play the match. Right. So that's what we're talking about. So why would anybody want to not play their match?
1: So typically, the way Swiss is organized is that when you win your match, you get three points. When you lose your match, you get zero points. And if you draw your match, you get one point. Now, normally that is there as sort of a silver lining if your match like went to time over and no one could win in time or some weird situation happened where you both actually draw in the game. And it it would feel bad if both of you got zero points for that, but it opens up the door for intentionally drawing. And then it's possible where you only need one point in order to secure, uh, that you're going to make it to that top eight cutoff. So you don't actually need to play as long as your opponent also has an incentive intentionally draw as well
0: so if you do play you have some chance of not making the cut to the top eight and if you draw you'll be guaranteed it's i mean you can be in that situation it's quite common Uh, and in order to know if you're in it it's actually pretty complicated you have to like understand this whole scoring system and what all the results are so far and compute it but you can do that and you should
1: (laughs) right it's actually very very important for example what you were talking about with magic the Gathering. It happens almost, if not literally, every single Pro Tour event. You see people intentionally drawing into the top eight or the top 25 or these various cutoff points that are important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one problem, there's kind of multiple problems here. One of problem is like, it's just kind of boring and unhype that intentional draw exists at all and is a thing. Okay, so that's one thing. And another thing is you have the same lame duck thing going on where one person has no chance of winning, but they... Like, let's say you offer me the intentional draw and you're doing that because if you draw, you will make the cut. And if you lose, you won't. That's why you're offering it. From my point of view, let's say I have no chance of winning at all. I'm not going to make the cut. Now, I can decline your intentional draw and play you and knock you out for no reason and no gain of my own. And some people think that's bad sportsmanship. But I don't really think so. I think it's within my right to do whatever I want as a player in this tournament. It's not bad sportsmanship. It's just bad tournament design.
1: (laughs) I think that would be completely absurd to say that playing your match is bad sportsmanship. Like, that's a total (laughs) failure of everything, if that was true. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, so what would you do in that situation if roles are reversed?
1: Well, I mean, if I was the one in that situation, I would determine whether... Uh, my friends who I'm with are going to be benefited by me playing this guy or not, or whether I like this guy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. All these kind of collusiony out of game things that are sad. Right.
1: And there's just no, there's no alternative to that. I mean, you could say, Oh, I'll just always play him no matter what. But I mean, if if it's your friend, no, you're not, you're just not going to do it.
0: Yeah. So I had to come up with a tournament structure for my own games and I thought really hard about all this stuff. And as I already said, my, Conclusion was to go with the Swiss and then cut to single elimination. But I also wanted to minimize these problems. Like maybe I can't totally fix every possible problem, but I could at least make there be fewer problems. And one thing you can do to slightly, just barely address the problem you just talked about is if it's possible to win points that go beyond just that tournament. Like, imagine you had a season-long record of points that went across tournaments. Then you want to play your match because you want those season points. Uh, And there could be a ranking of, you know, who has the most season points or something. So now people are going to just generally play all their matches and try to win a little bit more. The other thing you can do that's a lot, way, way more effect on fixing problems is that you can try to reduce or eliminate draws. I'm not actually sure why other games aren't going in this direction. So what I've done for my games is super extreme. In Flash Duel, Yomi, and Puzzle Strike, in the real tournament format, it is not possible to have a draw match. So that right there (laughs) solves a lot. And it also means that we can say... If you want to intentionally draw, like we both agree to draw, that's the same as if we both lose.
1: Right. You just make drawing worth zero points. And Yet. then for the real matches that accidentally go to draw, you just have sudden death rules.
0: Exactly. That's what there is, a sudden death rule. So there there's that means there's overall way fewer ties. And it doesn't eliminate ties of records, because you you still could have ties unless you made there be a really large number of tournament rounds, uh, which is bad, you know, for other reasons. But in a, in a normal number of tournament rounds, we just reduce the number of ties so that we will reduce the number of times we have to rely on those tiebreakers. And in my experience, that has worked out, that when it comes to computing, who's going to make that cut, we have fewer tiebreaker, we have less tiebreaker nonsense going on than other games would have had, like Magic.
1: Yeah. Yep, that's
0: right. Support for this podcast comes from patrons like you at patreon.com slash Serlin. You can become a patron and support the development of more finely tuned Serlin games as well as more content on this podcast. And if you do, you get access to a sneak peek at art that's in development and playtest materials for upcoming games. You also get access to a special second podcast where you can hear behind the scenes of how we actually solve design problems. That's patreon.com slash Surlin.
1: Okay, so now we've gone over the different types of tournaments that exist. But uh, what about the rules in these tournaments? Can we get some clarification on what kind of rules are allowed to exist?
0: Yes, that is an excellent question. And it has taken me probably 20 years now to really fully grasp what kind of rules can you even have. So let me break it into two types. The first type is a lot easier to understand. And it's what I've talked about and written about the most. It's what I cover in my book, Playing to Win. It's super solid rules, very clearly defined rules about what is allowed and what's not. So, for example, you could say that a certain character in a fighting game is banned. You can say that it's, if it's warranted, if that character really is too good, it's at least possible to make that rule because you can very easily tell if someone is playing that character or not. It's binary but you can't really have a rule like don't camp too much at the spawn point of a shooter. Cause what does that mean? Like too much, how much is too much? And then you try to put a time, like don't camp for three minutes. Then people camp like two minutes, 59 seconds, and they go a little bit far away. And did they go far enough away? It's like, it's squishy and bad. You don't even know what you're trying to define or something like you don't throw fireballs too much as Ryu or when you do this infinite combo, you can only do three loops, but what does a loop really mean? Like if I leave out one of the moves in the loop, does that still count as a loop? That's all bad. (laughs) Okay. So you need to have really solid, easily definable, completely definable rules. And a lot of tournaments go wrong by having too squishy of rules. The most common squishy rule is the spirit of the game rule, which is almost all basically always a bullshit rule. It's like we don't like how the players are playing, and so we're going to disqualify them. (laughs) Have you seen stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. Spirit of the game rules. I think that's it's like ironic or something because. The spirit of competition is here, we're giving you this system that you can do anything you want and play as hard as you want, explore every extremity of it, because we have very clear walls of where you can't go, but you can go everywhere you want within this gaming arena. And then to say, oh, but we don't like the way you're doing it, like, nah, that's spirit of the game is just in conflict with spirit of competition, really rubs me the wrong way.
1: Well, I guess I could explain why those rules tend to exist. Uh, the main thing is to protect the spectators. Sometimes you'll have a situation where, for any number of ridiculous reasons, two teams really don't care about the results of their match. So they might play some fake match where they joke around and do stupid things, and it looks bad on the tournament. So that's why those rules exist as sort of a disincentive. However, like you said... Then you start getting into thought policing, and you can't really know what their intention is. And I
0: think, <laughs> yes. I think I that up. let's talk about fake matches, though. So when I helped run the Evolution Fighting Game tournaments, that was uh, one thing that was really important to me. I thought the the number one of the top goals of our rule set should be to prevent fake matches that was a thing that would happen at the highest level, like grand finals level or winner's finals or loser's finals level of a tournament where you had people just screwing around, not even playing for real because they had already determined ahead of time who was going to win. And it just makes a mockery of the whole game. Like it's when it becomes a spectator game and we're streaming this or, you know, at the time selling DVDs or whatever, uh, it's horrible. It's, it's I can't even communicate to you how heartbreaking it is to have the showcase match be a fuck around nonsense thing.
1: Right. And didn't uh, sorry to cut you off, but didn't Go that ahead. actually happen in a Soul Caliber four finals I think it was at Evolution?
0: It did. It did happen in Soul Caliber. Yeah, and it happened years earlier, it happened in other tournaments. So, I was really committed to having this not happen and you have to design rules that eliminate the the, the incentive for it to happen. See, it's, that's a better way to attack all these problems. It's bad to give players a system where they should play a certain way and then tell them that they're disqualified. If they do, that's the naive approach or the, I don't know what I'm doing approach. And often spirit of the game is invoked there where you've created a situation Where uh, players should lose or something. We can talk about how that's happened in Badminton, for example. (laughs) Uh, Sure. uh, Well, let's come back to that. But yeah, it's better to make there be no reason to. And so in the way to make there be no reason to is I would tell the top players the number one priority we have as a tournament organization is for you to not play a fake match. We're asking you not to do it. So we're letting you know that that's not a rule, but it's just a request. But the actual rule is that you can forfeit. You're allowed to forfeit anytime you want. So there's no reason for you to play a fake match. Now, other tournaments tell you that you cannot forfeit, but if you cannot forfeit and you want to lose, then you're forced to play a fake match but I thought it was super important to have there be no reason at all to play the fake match because it's the worst outcome. So yeah, we allowed a forfeit for any reason. And that means uh, you could split the pot. Like there was no, I don't know if it's changed, but at the time there was no rule against splitting pots because we thought it was just impossible to police. So we just allowed it just like, yeah, if you want to split the pot, we can't actually stop you so at least just do it and forfeit and, and don't play a fake match. I don't know. Do you agree or disagree with that approach?
1: I think there's no other reasonable approach to it. So, yeah, I do agree with
0: it. Yeah, it's a sticky situation because you don't really want to let them split the pot. You know, you want them to play a real match. But what I mean, how can you do that?
1: As far as I know, you can't at all. So it's just better to let them forfeit, and that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. The The solution is for everyone to get mad about it, and then beat those people next time so they don't make it to the finals.
0: Okay, so we were talking about hard and fast rules and how those are good, but I now have like another layer of understanding of all this and it's about squishy rules. You actually have to have squishy rules. It's just that they're not the same type of rule. They're not they're not covering the same type of thing. All the rules that we were talking about originally as as hard rules, very clear rules, they're inside the magic circle of the game. They're inside like the universe of the game. You can move here or you can do this move or something. But the squishy rules have to do with our world that you and I live in as humans and the interface between our human world and the game. That's where things can get messy. So I'm going to play you a match. And in real life, like, I can talk to you, right, I assume, at any tournament (laughs) I've ever been in. So what can I say to you? Well, are there rules about that? And it turns out, yeah, there are, like... I shouldn't really be able to yell racist hate speech at you, right? Yeah, that wouldn't be very good. Okay, well, how do we have a rule for that? what like, What does the rule say? Don't
1: <laughs> uh, don't say racist hate speech.
0: Yeah, now that's a squishy rule because what qualifies and what doesn't. Or here's another similar one. So I can speak to you, but can I yell at you? Like you meaning like. A really loud volume of my voice And can I continue to yell Like what about during our whole match If I'm just screaming constantly I just I'm just making as much noise as I can Like should that be allowed? I don't think so It sounds really disruptive
1: Yeah it seems awful
0: Yeah I don't I mean I've I can't imagine any tournament allowing you to to literally scream through the entire match, <laughs> but we, now we need a rule for that. And does the rule list like a number of decibels that your voice can be? <laughs> and then how do you know like when you're at that? And can you if it's like, you know, X decibels, can you talk at X minus one now, or X minus point five of a decibel? Like, yeah, it's it's squishy. So I th- I think the wrong response to that is. And therefore, we can't have the rule. So imagine if someone said, we can't actually have solid rules about the hate speech and yelling thing. So we just won't have those rules. (laughs) So what's the result? The result is that the tournament becomes a yelling hate speech thing. Like
1: It would be, you would have no choice but to say that I'm allowed to do that because there's absolutely no rule against it.
0: Yeah, this, the fine point I'm trying to make here is that the normal state of affairs is people do not yell or say hate speech to each other. That's pretty rare. So that's good. Right. So now let's come right. up. That's that's You know, this is not really going to be a problem. Now, if we come up with the rules, though, just in case someone does it and then we decide, oh, we need to reject these rules and not have them because they're imperfect that we I mean the rules are basically then going to say you can speak at any volume and there's no limit to the amount of hate speech you can get and so that's that's going to affect the real behavior of players like tournaments under that rule set will have more yelling and more hate speech than if we just did nothing <laughs> because we've right. explicitly made it legal right all right so that's stupid and i think the right answer is accept that you need squishy rules on stuff outside of the game because there is just no choice. And it doesn't mean that we need squishy rules inside the game, such as don't throw too many fireballs. doesn't mean that we shouldn't have those, but we really do need stuff about don't talk too loud. Don't be too much of a jerk (laughs) because there's just no alternative. And now the thing that gets really interesting to me and that, I mean, I struggle with this and I don't know the right answer is how does that impact collusion? So do we have rules about you and I deciding ahead of time, you know, who's going to win? Oh, maybe maybe you and I and three or four other players all have this network of who's going to win and lose to each other to manipulate the results of the tournament. Uh, so is that allowed? And if you are even starting to think yes to that, then consider the other alternative of, some outside force is some outside party to the tournament is going to pay me money to lose on purpose. And is that okay? No, it's not right.
1: (laughs) It's really hard to discern when that's happening, but ultimately it's horrible for the tournament.
0: Well, what if I told you it absolutely is happening? Like, Uh, well,
1: then then you should figure out some way to not allow it to happen.
0: Like the thing, uh, the example of the yelling and hate speech thing, like it sounded like a silly jokey thing. But now we're talking about something really serious, and it's, it's basically the same situation. So we can say, uh, it's really hard to ever make a rule to stop outsiders from paying you off to lose. Like, how would we ever know or enforce that? So therefore, we don't have the rule, and we explicitly, as part of the rules, we say, like, it's legal. Like, you can forfeit because you're paid off. That's legal. So if we did that, we will increase the amount of bribes in our tournament structure, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think we would. So that's bad. We don't want to increase the number of bribes in our tournaments. And so we have really no choice but to go with the squishy rule of you can't accept bribes. You can't lose. Like I used to say that you needed to have the right to forfeit for any reason, literally any reason at all. And now I think I have to back off from that a little bit and say, okay, any reason except if you were bribed from outside (laughs) of the tournament. Okay. I'm going to say that like pretty forcefully. And now do I also have to say you can't forfeit for reasons of win trading within the tournament or not? Like, you know, you and I are facing each other and uh, I think that you have a better shot against the next opponent. So I'll lose to you. Right. Right. So is that legal or not?
1: Uh, It's, it's really hard to say. I mean, it's, I don't know. You have thoughts on that maybe first and I could jump in after.
0: I think it's a really tough question. I, I think the case of the bribe is so extreme that that one's easier because we say, look, you just, we just can't even have a tournament at all. So we have to be against that one. The thing about win trading within the tournament, that's bad. It's not as bad. I don't know. I feel like we have to try to say no to that too, even though there's just never.
1: Well, I mean, you'd like to say no. The question is, how do you come up with an even remotely reasonable rule that would prevent that without preventing other more legitimate Yeah, I think
0: I think we maybe can't even say no to that, because if we did say no, the result would be that in that case where I wanted to lose to you, but then a rule told me I wasn't allowed to forfeit, I would play you a fake match. And that's the thing that we wanted to avoid the most.
1: (laughs) Well, kind of. But I mean, isn't that also true of a bribe? I mean, if I was bribed, you told me I can't forfeit, then I would play a fake match and throw it on purpose.
0: Oh, yeah, that's also true. I guess the thing is that a fake match used to be like 100 out of 100 bad, but now the bribe is like 200 out of 100 bad. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Because the, beyond, it, there is a difference be- because at least when you're when trading or you know just decide to throw the match to your opponent, like your friend or whoever, at least that's all taking place within the confines of the tournament itself.
0: Yes, that's what I'm trying to get at is that the, when you go outside of the structure of the tournament, that's even more bad. <laughs> and that's what that bribe and, and, is.
1: Right. And also to some degree, it's more enforceable. I mean, maybe not on a small scale. Like if we ran like a little 16 player tournament at your house or something, we probably wouldn't have any clue, but you know, if you're talking about like the world series of baseball, then, you know, it's usually pretty, it's conceivable to find out about some kind of huge bribe that takes place and, and stop that.
0: Well, I wanted to touch on a couple more examples before we wrap up. So one of them was from badminton and in badminton, they had this crazy tournament structure where they had pools, which we covered earlier, uh, where you and a few other players try to advance out of those pools to get to like the real tournament. And in this case, the real tournament was a single elimination tournament. Now at evolution, when we did this, you enter a, you get out of your pool and you enter a double elimination tournament in both cases, the badminton case and the evolution case, we take the top two players from the pool, okay. But the big difference here is in the evolution case. Those top two players involve somebody who never lost and someone who lost once, and the the losses do not reset, okay. So when the person who never lost gets put into the bracket, they're put on the winner side of the double elimination bracket, and the person who did. Lose gets put in the loser side. So it's very clear why you should win in the evolution case. Right. You should win because it is just better to be in the winner's bracket. You're able to lose once and still be in the tournament. Whereas if you've got put in the loser's bracket and you lose once you're out, you're out, you're eliminated. Now in the badminton case though, that isn't true. The, the top two players, one of which lost and one of which didn't both get put in a single elimination mm-hmm bracket right so there's no drawback to losing yeah
1: right well in the situation where so if it was like four teams for example it, it was four teams right
0: no you know i don't remember years. how many teams it was but i the most important information there is the most important part of that is that there's a case where there's a match where they're both going to advance they're both already top two or something. But the loser will be seated in a worse place in the bracket. But the problem is that the bracket was completely known already. So the quote-unquote worst place in the in the worst of the two choices here was against the team that each each of these teams thought they could beat. Right. Do you follow that? So right. So like, if I if I beat you, I get put in the single elimination bracket. Uh, supposedly against a weaker opponent, but actually there was some upset in the (laughs) tournaments earlier. So it turns Mm -hmm. out that that if I lose the, the particular team I go up against happens to be weaker. So both teams knew that and both teams wanted to lose. And the thing here is that this is what I talked about earlier, where the forces here tell each player, each team that they should lose. It is smart to win the tournament by losing this match. But then the tournament directors said, oh, that's against the spirit of the tournament and you have to try as hard as you can. But trying as hard as you can is against your own interest in winning. So it doesn't make any sense at all.
1: I actually, you just reminded me of a situation that happened in a World of Warcraft tournament some years ago, where essentially you had a similar idea where there was pools and in one pool, the top two teams were going to play their match to see who got the one seed and the two seed going into the final bracket. And the loser was going to have to play against the most feared team. In mm-hmm. the bracket. So what MLG did at the time, which I actually thought was kind of clever, is they said, OK, this is ridiculous. Both teams have openly said they they want to lose. Like neither neither one of them even wants to play their match. They're both trying to forfeit. So you'll play the match and then the winner gets to choose their seed rather than being automatically yeah. seeded first.
0: Right. I understand that. That would have made a lot more sense in the badminton example, too. If, if losing is better, then it should be flipped around, right? And let the winner... Right. Pick. let want to just
1: decide. Yeah.
0: The other way to solve it would have been to not have the brackets known so much, like not tell them exactly which spot they're going to be in to say it's better seated.
1: I oh, mean, that could it, work. Yeah.
0: Depends. Okay. Uh, the, here's a, one more topic. It's kind of related. So I was just arguing with a tournament director, uh, the other day, and it was about what should be allowed in fighting game tournaments, like what kind of controls should be allowed. So there's this kind of controller called a hitbox, which has no joystick and all buttons. And in my opinion, this should not be allowed. And I don't want to play against anyone who is using that because I think it's an uneven play field in terms of uh, hardware. So uh, the hitbox is a difficult controller to use. Like I don't personally want to use it but I acknowledge that there's some moves you can do on there that are just better and easier than you can on a stick. So if you got used to it, then ultimately it would be a hardware advantage. Like uh you can go just to give an example. You can go like left, right. We can go, let's say left down, right up. You can input that faster there than you ever physically could on a joystick because you've got to move the joystick, like a long distance. Um, So yeah, it has more than zero advantage and therefore it shouldn't be allowed. Now, if you think it should be allowed, then what that does is it forces everyone to use that to be competitive. So it takes the standard hardware we've always used, which is the joystick or pads, because pads, controllers that ship with the console kind of have to allow those. And it kind of throws all that out the window and says everybody has to use this weirdo thing to be competitive. So the surprise here is that even though I framed this as an argument, he actually agreed with me on that. (laughs) Now, do you you have any opinion on that particular subject? Or should I give the next wrinkle?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I'd like to add that not only... I mean, that kind of adds another layer too, where not only are you forcing people to perhaps use that odd hardware, but now you're also possibly developing some sort of arms race situation where people are trying to make more and more crazy controllers that happen to do the specific things in that game better.
0: Yep. That's right. I feel like just, if it's that's, if, if, that's if, just a if, can if, of worms, if I have like a normal joystick and that is a mistake, then there's some screw up in the rules somewhere. <laughs> uh, I think sure. a, a similar thing happened in golf and I'm not too knowledgeable about this. So forgive me, but uh, the, the way putters work in golf. So somebody started using a putter where the, uh, the shaft is so long that it, it goes up against your belly button, uh, which is like not normal. And then you use that as like a pivot point. And it's like a weird way of using a putter that people don't usually do, but somebody had some success with that. And then other people realized. uh, oh, basically it's, it's kind of like this hitbox thing. They realize, Oh, there's legitimate advantages to that. And actually it might be better. And so there was a discussion about like, should that be allowed? And if it, if the answer is yes, then it will force everyone to eventually putt like that. Now, I don't know enough about golf to have a really strong opinion on that, but I do understand the high concept there that maybe when you say, what is golf about? It's shouldn't be about putting in that weird way, or maybe it should, I don't know. But I recognize the similarity. Like, I definitely don't think fighting games should be about everyone using hitboxes and no joysticks. Similarly, like in a a race car thing, like NASCAR or something, you can't really show up with like a rocket engine on your car. (laughs) Because if you could, if you could, there'd be an arms race and everyone would have rocket engines. And that's fine. And that's a type of race. But that's not the NASCAR race. There's like actual regulations on what your car can have so that it can be the kind of race they want and that just seems similar to me here
1: right it's a matter of what you want the paradigm to be what what you want the game, how you want the game to be played at all
0: yeah so some people who just i don't know are annoying to me like show up with oh isn't that just scrubby or just being a scrub but no it really isn't it's it's defining what sport we're even going to be playing right exactly <laughs> so here's i told you that i had an argument but that wasn't actually the argument uh, we were on the same page there so the argument was uh, let's turn it down a notch. It's not uh, a weird physical hardware thing, but one top player is mapping their start button right next to the regular attack buttons so they can do some plinking bullshit or something that the start button can do. Uh, something where like, you, you're you pressing start and then jab and you're getting like two chances at an input instead of one. So he does that. And I'm, I thought that, I mean, I don't know the specifics of, I don't know what the rules, the full shape of all the rules, but as step one, we need to figure out how to ban that, <laughs> in my opinion.
1: Right, I actually for the agree same, with
0: you. For the same reason, because if you don't, it, question one, does it give an advantage? Yes. So aren't I forced to do that? Isn't everyone forced to do that? Now this game... It used to be, like, Jab, Strong, Fierce, Short Forward, Roundhouse, and a joystick, and but now it's, like, a seven-button bullshit thing with start. Like, what the fuck?
1: Right. Or, I mean, or ideally, you would just have it so that the game doesn't give any sort of advantage, but failing that, like, let's say the game's really fantastic, but also to have this bad property, then you really should try to take measures to make it so that the game is played in an organic way and not this ridiculous, like, extra button on the side thing.
0: So, in my opinion... Allowing the start button here is going outside of the magic circle, like outside of the universe of the game, because the game itself is Jab, Strong, Fierce, Short Forward, Roundhouse and a joystick. And this is it's not analogous to some move in the game that's really strong. And so we want to ban it because we don't like how the gameplay works. It's not like that because it's it's actually changing my physical hardware configuration, (laughs) which I feel like should be off limits of, of how anything could work. Uh, but he here's his argument was that there's another button there physically on a lot of joysticks. like it can be set to blank or something. So the button's there. And the game itself in the menus allows you to map start there, therefore it's okay. Anything that the game lets you map is, in his opinion, within the universe of the game. Is that a compelling argument? I didn't think so, but it's not compelling he did.
1: to me, but I, I do understand. I mean, it, 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 like in Street Fighter 4, for example, I personally think that the triple punch and triple kick binds, which are on by default, by the way. Like let's say you have an eight button joystick, like a Mad Cats tournament edition. Yeah. They actually have the, the seventh and eighth buttons next to the heavies, and those are by default mapped to triple punch or triple kick. Uh, I personally disable them. I don't I don't like them. I don't think that that's the way the game's intended to be played, but it's hard to argue with people that say it is intended that way because it's on by default.
0: Okay, let me say two things at once here. So first, uh, the next part of his argument was uh, the if I did somehow make a rule that you can't use the start button, that the player could map a second jab button to do basically the same kind of thing, and now am I against mapping a second jab button? But the answer is like, yeah, I'm sort of cornered into being against that too. Because if you can get an advantage by playing jab, jab, strong fear, short forward roundhouse, then everyone has to do that. And now you've, now you're playing like this stupid seven button game that was never intended and is just dumb. (laughs) So these things like are really frustrating to be allowed. Now, the thing you brought up of the three punch stuff, that's, it's really in the same category. And here's some trivia for you from HD Remix. When we we're working on that, some of the programmers were like, hey, what functions are, are going to be on the control setup screen? And they asked if the punch times three and kick times three would be there. And they assumed I would say yes, because it was in the previous version. But I said, it can't be. Because if it is, then players will use it in a tournament. And that's bad, because we're going to force everyone to do stupid tricks with that. And they had no idea like that didn't never even cross their minds. Like they're only thinking about, well, doesn't the casual guy need this or something, which is a legit question that does the casual person need it is a very important question. But they weren't even imagining tournaments. So that's why you have all these functions on all these fighting games. It's because they're not thinking about how it's going to fuck up tournaments. No, I don't think any of these developers are thinking that and what they allow. Like if you told them, Oh, you can't have these macros, like because it might affect a tournament, like I don't blow blow their minds. So what I did instead on HG remix was I took out the punch times three and kick times three and changed the game itself so that there were no moves that used it. And instead they're all become two button moves that are, uh, they're specifically two buttons that are easy to press on a console with your thumb. So then you just don't need it. Uh, But that's just, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily every game needs to do that, but maybe they should. But just the point is then seeing in the mind of the developers there, that just because something is allowed in the control config, it does not mean that it makes sense in a tournament. Yeah. But this guy's argument was that that's an easier to enforce rule, like, if it's in the menu, you can do it. And if it's not, then you can't. And that's true. That is easier easier to enforce. But you get the result that now everyone needs a start button or something or a second jab. It's really frustrating. Right. Uh, well, unless you had anything else to add, I, I think we're done for now on tournaments.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's it.
0: <laughs> well, tournaments are tricky to do right. So our final summary here is that. For all its faults, we do like Swiss plus cuts to single limb. Oh, I'm going to add one last thing before we go. And that is the Japanese Street Fighter or fighting game tournament format, which is pretty interesting. They do single elimination. And then you might say, oh, but single elimination, you lose lose once and you're out. Like, isn't that unfun? But they do them so frequently that if you lose one, just wait a week or wait a day. And do another one. They just do so many single elimination tournaments that it's kind of okay if you lose one, and it works out really well because they're fast, they're fun to participate in. Uh, it's kind of fun that like sometimes someone wins one that wouldn't abnormally, and in the in the long run, the better players do win more, so you know who they are. It it kind of succeeds on many levels.
1: Right, right. So basically, they're they're solving the issue with the variance of only having One single match and single elimination with just having a crap ton of tournaments.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, thanks for discussing tournaments with me. All right, take care, Okay, take care. And now for a special guest, Garcia1000.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm the special guest, Garcia 1000. Hi, Silent.
0: Hi. Thanks for coming. Uh, Thanks. So what are we talking about this time?
2: Let's talk about uh, the the curious case of Nintendo.
0: Nintendo, yeah. They are making quite a comeback right now.
2: Yes. Yeah. Very, very surprising to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it is. I've linked, uh, articles to my friends a few months ago about Nintendo and all of them were about analysts saying gloom and doom and they were going to go out of business or whatever, maybe not that extreme, but they should definitely stop making their own hardware and they've failed and they've lost. It was just all bad stuff. And now everything I read is the opposite that they're this comeback hero and they're doing amazing.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, you know, after, well, everyone liked the Wii, but then when they came out with the Wii U, people all said, "You know, is this an upgrade? Is this a new system? What's 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 up with this thing? Why is why is the controller bigger than my face? What's what's the use of, of you know all of these bad games, right?" And so yeah, no one cared, it, and they just yeah.
0: kind of like it, the Wii the Wii U is like a joke thing that we just ignore.
2: Yeah, and then in an amazing uh, turnaround. Uh, the, the Wii U is now the, the hottest system uh, it has a lot of great games and it's it's really a, it's if I was going to buy a console that's the one I'd buy from this generation
0: yeah so they they made some high rated games a while ago like Mario 3D World um, and what else what were some of the
2: uh, there's the Wii U new Super Mario Luigi 3D World.
0: Yeah, um, uh, that that was
2: and, I, I yeah, that was great.
0: And Pikmin 3. There were there were a few uh, other pretty high rated games from a while ago, but uh, people just didn't really latch on to the system overall, I think. And now that they've released uh, the big turning point was Mario Kart 8 and then Smash Brothers right after that, and both of those started selling systems, like not just games but Really started picking up selling systems, and then Bayonetta 2, uh, which some people are saying is like one of the greatest action games. It also comes with a remake of Bayonetta 1, and now all that has snowballed so much that a lot of the news stories say, "Hey, yeah, those games are good, but there's also like Mario 3D World and Pikmin 3, and you know the old, the old good ones too." And when you add it all up now on Metacritic, there's actually um, there's more games rated above eighty-five percent on Nintendo's console than on Microsoft and Sony's put together.
2: Yeah, it's 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 really amazing the turnaround in in how analysts and how the media view Nintendo now. They have just uh, they have they really did a really good job on getting good games to the system, and so so that this uh, actually made it the most uh, most promising. Uh, console. So uh, I guess one thing uh, that's pretty apparent is that uh, apart from technical uh, specifications, what's really important is getting enough good games at uh, your system. Uh, that's more important than, than anything else, I think. So that really bears this out.
0: Yeah, I just ordered a Wii U yesterday, so I didn't get it yet. But uh, yesterday I was reading our forums from when the Wii U came out uh, to see what people's thoughts were, and something that they said over and over at that time was, well, they were a little unsure, like, is it a joke? Is it really good? I don't know. But, (laughs) But third party support will be the big thing, whether they can get it or not. And it turns out that that's completely false. That they doubled down on all their own properties, and third parties didn't matter. They don't have third party support. All they have is their own excellent games.
2: Yeah, that's something that uh, that even even uh, a lot of people, uh, me included, that we we didn't see is that a lot of the Nintendo properties are really famous and that they are really big draws, like um, like Mario. Uh, I, one of my friends bought a Wii U just to play a uh, multiplayer, uh, some Mario 64 or something. It's it's like Mario but with multiplayer. Anyways, but they the, because uh, because he wants children as well as uh, as old people to play it, and that's really recognizable. Uh, Mario, Zelda, uh, Mario Kart, uh, uh, Smash Brothers, uh, and some some other stuff. So. So we grew up with these games, so uh, we we know that we'll enjoy them, even even if we don't play them forever. So it's 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 more reliable than something like uh, some 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 game coming out on the Xbox, which uh, you know like Mortal Kombat or or whatever. We we don't know what what what's up with those games. So so that's uh, especially now when there's so much choice, uh, we can. We can we can play Xbox, we can play PlayStation, uh, we can we can play the Wii, and also we can play on iPad or, or mobile gaming. So, so even with mobile gaming involved, we can uh, people still are interested in Nintendo. That's that's amazing to me.
0: Yeah, let me tell you an interesting story that I'm going to butcher from. Uh, Iwata, who's the president of Nintendo, at Game Developers Conference several years ago, he gave a lecture that was really memorable, uh, even even though I'm going to screw it up for you right now. But he told us about the story of a company who dominated its own industry, and everyone knew it was like the number one company. But then another bigger company came along that had more money and kind of pushed their way in the market. And the first company was sad and saw their market share shrink and shrink and the punchline is that as he's telling it, like we all know he means Nintendo, but he says, no, actually, this is a story about Coke and Pepsi. Uh, and I I've know. got it mixed up like which one was which I think Pepsi was the one that came in and started taking Coke's market share, although I might have it backwards. Uh, but he said that what the, um, underdog did in that scenario was to stop fighting the main battle And the competitor didn't know that 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 was happening. So when you think that the battlefield is Coke versus Pepsi, you can get really blindsided when suddenly that same company comes out with the number one sports drink, the number one bottled water uh, and so on. There were like five different categories of beverages that suddenly this company was number one in, and then their competitor is like, oh my God, what's happening? We didn't know that was, we didn't know that was the battlefield at all. And they had to scramble to catch up. So he said, that is what they are going to do at Nintendo. They're going to shift the battlefield to something completely different that the game industry only sees hardcore games, but they see something they call software entertainment. Uh. And it can include all sorts of crazy things. Uh, and one planet of the solar system of software entertainment is the kind of games that we've seen before. And they said that they're not going to abandon that planet. And they showed resident evil four and some other, maybe it was smash. I don't know. Some real gamers game and said, we're still going to do that, but we're going to do a bunch of weird stuff too, like Nintendogs and this crazy thing <laughs> called, called brain age, which he told us about, which no one has ever heard of in that room, uh, and then the punchline there was that underneath all our seats was a copy of brain age for DS. <laughs> so, uh, when he was telling that I could kind of tell everyone in the room thought like, yeah, it's a nice story, but is that really going to be anything? And then they came out with the Wii and it was exactly what he said. It was a crazy left turn where they did something, you know, no one expected really. Um, and they kind of won at one point. I mean, they were way ahead in in sales. Uh, one last, thing thing there is that when I was at various game companies and I'd hear publishers talk about the, you know, the next game that they're going to make or something, they'd always mention Sony and Nintendo's platforms, but my, um, sorry, Sony and Microsoft's, but they didn't even talk about Nintendo. They were, Nintendo's like a non-issue, like for all anyone knew, there just wasn't going to be a a Wii. And then it dominated (laughs) in sales.
2: Yeah. And, and it's, and what's even uh, what's even more remarkable is that uh, we're looking at this with the benefit of hindsight, and it still it still looks uh, really visionary. Uh, at, during the time before the Wii launched, uh, it was even more um, even even more amazing because absolutely no one uh, could could see this. Uh, it it was it was like shifting, like if if it was previously at two dimensional system they were shifting to a 3d system uh, it was something that it, it just didn't occur to anyone it was uh, i mean in terms of management a vision and courage i think that's one of the the really really top decisions of all time
0: yeah and I'm even with hindsight I'm kind of confused now so they did this crazy risky different thing that no one really expected and then it did really well at one point they sold more Wii Fit balance boards than Sony had sold PlayStation (laughs) 3s that's a real stat that's how well they did but then like something went wrong and no one cared about the Wii anymore and we realized it was all just a big gimmick and it looked like Nintendo was just gonna die like they had lost and that's where we started seeing all the negative press and then the Wii U doesn't really have much new I mean it, it doesn't take a crazy risk anymore people don't know why it has this tablet screen really um. but they did it again with just good games like there, it wasn't really about a trick this time it was just good software
2: yeah uh, yeah the first time was uh, was like being a pioneer being a visionary and then the second time is that they built upon their previous success, and they, they they really focused on execution and on giving solid games. So what this showed was that, uh, you know, uh, I, I bought a Wii as well, and then I played it for a few weeks, and then, you know, this is fun, but I don't really feel like playing it all that much. And that's I think that's because of the relatively uh, poor execution uh, afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. They they didn't really uh, provide us with a solid a solid library of uh, good games that you would want to play for a long time uh, but uh, even though that was the case the underlying system was still good so when they they came out and they upgraded it uh, incrementally uh, they made a good thing better and when they added the the secret sauce of uh, having several several good and high profile games that's what uh, really made people sit up and pay attention.
0: So the thing they've done over and over is they create a new verb, uh, a new yes. action for the player to do. Like they have, they've created the analog stick. Uh, they created what the motion controller, the, they created the D pad. Uh, yeah.
2: yeah the the Nintendo. The,
0: yeah. So they, they create a new thing that, or two screens on a DS and, They can make games around that thing. So it's because they control the hardware and software that they're able to do as well as they can. Uh, They know that. But then the investors and the analysts and all that, they keep saying, look, Nintendo, you got to give up on the hardware because you've lost. And what they mean there is that once someone like Apple has come along, Apple can sell so many iPhones that they're buying flash memory at a level where it affects the global supply, like literally it affects the global supply of flash memory. Same thing with screens like that, at that level of, uh, of sales, the R and D and tech that goes into Apple products is so far beyond what Nintendo can do that their touch Nintendo's touch screen is like some garbage tech thing. And it's just getting worse and worse. Um, and another thing is convergence. Like you want really only one device in your pocket, so that's going to be your phone yeah, that yeah. can play games and not Nintendo's thing. That's another reason that analysts say stop making hardware. But Nintendo is so stubborn uh, that they they're just never going to listen to that, right? So what's con- what's the yeah. future going to be?
2: Yeah, well, you know, investors and analysts. I mean, what what did they know really? I mean, the, the, all they they all all they're concerned about is the profits, right? So. Uh, whether the, whether Nintendo makes hardware or not, uh, whatever, just choose whatever makes the most money. That's the free market. But uh, from Nintendo's point of view, uh, that's not really how it works at all, because uh, uh, having your own hardware, it, it means that you're more free to experiment with more things. It gives you more uh, strategic possibilities. Uh, may, maybe the, the iPhone is more technologically advanced, but, but can it really do... Uh, Specifically, everything that Nintendo wants—can uh, it have two screens like a DS? Uh, probably mm-hmm. no, because because that's that's not the purpose of an iPhone. So, so what what hardware provides for Nintendo is that uh, by by maintaining their capability for hardware, they can they can innovate, and I think that's something that a lot of uh, a lot of analysts and investors miss is that uh, historically Nintendo's cycle has been, as you said, it has been uh, innovate and then execute. So uh, uh, innovate uh, with uh, with the Wii and then execute with the Wii U. And, uh, innovate with uh, with the NES and then execute with the Super NES uh, as uh, things like that. Uh, if if they got out of hardware and, and they just focused on, on software, then they'd end up like Sega or something. You know after Sega got out of uh, making hardware, they were relegated to a sort of a, a bit player. Uh, now, I don't think they, they even exist now. They merged with some, some Japanese uh, companies. So that's, that's the sad path that Nintendo doesn't want to walk down.
0: Yeah, and maybe they have proven themselves by now because when the Wii was announced, uh, they didn't say anything about the specs on purpose because they said the focus should be, are the games interesting? And it doesn't matter what megahertz they're at or whatever. Uh, That was their marketing strategy and and it worked well. And they've continued to do that ever since. They know that they don't have the specs. And so not only do they not tout them, they go the other way and they say it doesn't matter. They say these only good games matter, not specs. They've been doing that for so long that I guess they've shown that's a real strategy.
2: <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, I think, I, I mean, that, that's a logical strategy for them. And I also think it resonates with a lot of people, like uh, like when you're eating ice cream, right? You, yeah. uh, one way of, of advertising is saying, oh, we have, uh, we use a full cream premium milk, uh, so that, uh, you know, uh, two, uh, 3% super milk from from Japan or something. So that would be the strategy of Sony or Microsoft. But what they're doing is they're saying, you know, um, ingredients, uh, our ice cream tastes good. Uh, that's what Nintendo's doing. And then people try the ice cream and they say, you know, this ice cream really tastes good. Who who, who cares what it's made of? Uh, so And so they keep on buying. And... And from the the, the consume, consumer, from the player's perspective, what really matters is whether the games are good, whether the games are fun. And then technical specs are just a really minor portion of this.
0: Yeah, um, we should wrap up, but I'll tell you one more thing I heard at a conference that relates to this. There was a lecture from someone, I think they were at Ubisoft, if I remember right. And the premise of this was that the Wii had sold so many units that a company should theoretically be able to make a Wii game that sells a lot, but that no one could except Nintendo and even he couldn't. And so he was trying to analyze why that was. And so marketing could be a thing, but he actually didn't think marketing was the problem because he had plenty of marketing too. He thought it was a philosophy of making games that Nintendo has that everyone else just sucks at. And uh, he, he pointed specifically to Nintendo's advertisements where they, uh, I see. I'm getting mixed up on which system this. If it was Wii or whatever, but all the ads at for, at one point in time for Nintendo games showed the players and not the game. Do you remember that? They showed people. Yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah.
2: That, that's for the Wii, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was for the Wii. And his his point was yeah. that. That's not just a marketing trick. That's really how they were thinking of developing those games is what will go on in the room as opposed to what goes on in the game system. And so they were trying to design the fun that players would have in real life in a real space next to each other. And that, that whole way of thinking was just so alien to most game makers. So I don't know. Yeah, Ninten- Nintendo's yeah, really I, special. Yeah, th-
2: yeah, I agree. That's, uh, that's a really good insight. Uh, Nintendo is sort of like a good version of Zynga. They design games <laughs> for the player, and you know, instead of you know designing games as as a game. So that's that's a good insight, I think.
0: All right. Well, that's enough for this week. So thanks great, for thanks, chatting uh, about Nintendo.
2: Great. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care.